My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. It was a very humbling experience and, and a, you know, yeah, quite a, quite a curious thing, but it just kind of enamored, I think, my, my love for um, travel and experiences with other cultures. And, and through those experiences, you can learn so much about yourself. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're joined by the owner of Prop Developer, David Kelly. We will learn how his natural sense of curiosity led him to becoming a successful engineer which benefits him in the world of property development. As well as this, Kelly will detail his memorable trip to India which has had long-lasting effects on his life and property. Kelly has always had a natural curiosity about how the world works. This curiosity led him down a path with lots of twists and turns. My background is really from grassroots construction, i.e. Um, I did, I went after high school, I went to university and studied civil engineering in Melbourne at um, Swinburne Institute. And following that, I actually wanted to really understand what it was like to build stuff because I was always aligned much more to the structural side of engineering rather than the civil side, you know, pipes and roads and things. I like seeing things go up vertically. And so I went off and I, um, I started doing some laboring work. I then went and did a full carpentry apprenticeship. So I had this kind of unusual set of skills uh, where I had a, a, a bachelor of civil engineering with a bit of uh, experience. And then I went back and, and had a nail bag around my waist and I got indentured as a carpenter and, and did that. And then I went on and became a builder and used that in various capacities. I then moved up from Melbourne up to the Gold Coast or to Brisbane, was managing a business there and then got back into engineering where we were designing steel frame buildings. And, and then from there, I went on to um, become an engineer for a uh, foundation engineering company. So they were doing piling systems. And I started then a business because I, I always knew I could make it as a contractor. Um, and so I started a, a piled foundation engineering company and it was using screw piles. The technology was still new in the 90s and Kelly found this to be an advantage. It was very, very useful because we could come in and put piles down from anywhere between you know, 2 meters and 15 meters quite comfortably and affordably for the contractor 
Um, but it was because it was an emerging technology. And, and the thing is, I always used to say to people, if you've got a problem with your foundations, you've got to actually fix it properly or else it's going to come back and always be a problem. So because it was emerging, there was a reluctance to take that on completely. The price comparison to, say, drill piles was always very advantageous for screw piles because it was a cheaper method, faster method. Um, but there was concerns about doing real, you know, bigger projects, infrastructure type projects, because they thought, is this just some new idea which really hasn't got a good engineering basis to it? So that's where I really shone because I was able to incorporate my structural engineering understanding and give presentations and whether that be technical or whether that be in conferences and things, talking about the merits of screw piles. And I always would say that, hey, these are limited in what they can do, but where they, in a field where they operate and can be justified, then they're very good. So that that experience, that 10 years, we did a 1,000 projects in all over Australia, but I also did projects in New Zealand, infrastructure-type projects. I did um, projects in Singapore, Malaysia, um, and then I did. Then I participated in the largest joint venture project which had ever occurred in China at the time, which was a petrochemical plant east of Shenzhen, just over the Chinese border. This deal in China was a $4.5 billion project and Kelly played an important role in designing a foundation system. You know, we had the big heavy hitters in there. There was Bechtel, uh, Foster Wheeler were the project managers. Um, it was a Shell, China National Offshore Oil Corp. So it, it really was probably the highlight of my career in that field because you had to, you were introducing an emerging technology which had never been used apparently in China at that time. And so I had to be able to, uh, stump up with um, and be able to, from a uh, from an engineering design point of view, justify what we were doing, and then also be able to uh, get that done in real time and and you know using the the available resources and things we had there of labour and materials. So I found it was a probably the highlight of my career there, and I came back, uh, had a couple more years in the business. Then I decided to sell the business and I got out of that and had a brief go at uh, um, investment banking. Uh, which and I travelled around the world for a couple of years doing that, and that was a buzz. That was good. I like you know like the idea of leverage, and I like the idea of leveraging money, and so that was a terrific experience. Um, we came a real gutter actually. You know, it's like like you were riding a motorbike flat out, and then you ran to the back of a bus. You know, that's what happened to us. We just got w- wiped out by the GFC way back then, and um, so then I went back into traditional piling, engineering design, etc. And then from there, I went on to property development, really accumulating, uh, like putting all those skills together as a property developer of my own projects. And then uh, for Toyota Australia, I was their, probably their, their main consultant for property development in Australia for 10 years. And that was a great experience as well, doing different projects for them. All of this experience has built up to Kelly becoming a very successful property developer. And this is where his focus lies. Well, right at the moment, I've been doing a couple of things. I'm refinancing some properties I have in Brisbane to pull out some equity and do another active property development. So a little bit of time in that sort of realm. Um, I'm also managing uh, seven uh, medium-sized construction projects and rectification projects on high-rise buildings here on the Gold Coast. So um, a whole smattering of clients and also uh, different experiences where probably I'm doing one project on the largest building in Surface Paradise, and um, and so the, I'm finding that that's it's a great it's a, it's an interesting field. You're doing the same sort of work that you would do in normal construction, but you're getting a lot of love. 
getting love from body corporates, getting love from their building managers, which is something that often doesn't happen in our trade at all. You're getting often you're getting booted from you know from dusk till dawn, um, and it's an interesting uh, opportunity to be able to perform well, do it, do a decent job, but then get real, lots of feedback and lots of positive feedback from all these different stakeholders. It has taken a lot of hard work for Kelly to build his success. Let's take a look at where it all began. Well, I grew up in country New South Wales in a small place called Corowa. Uh, it was a population of about 3,000 people then and it's about 6,000 people now, you know, 40 years later, so it hasn't grown a lot. Um, but, you know, grassroots, grassroots town, uh, football and cricket were the only things that really existed throughout the year and we were always outside playing sport of one sort or another. From a young age, Kelly always displayed his sense of curiosity. I summarise it as just wanting to understand how the world worked and, and how things worked, you know, whether that be buildings or cars or mo- motors or whatever. And my mum used to say that just as a, as a two-year-old, I would grab a knife and I would, that we had a, our kitchen table, our dining table was, had this beading running around it and it had screws in at certain, you know, distances, foot centres, I guess, or something. And somehow I'd worked out that uh, let's undo that thing. So completely unprompted as a two-year-old, here I am with a you know, makeshift screwdriver, a bread and butter knife, undoing this beading, and they came in and the thing's like half undone. They're, my dad probably looked at it and thought, my God, what am I going to do now? Because I'm not sure he would have known how to put it back. With all due respect to dad, he just wasn't that, um, you know, that wasn't his thing. This trait of curiosity and innovation continued to Kelly's teenage years. In my year 10 at school, I did a um, did metalwork. And part of metalwork was that you uh, had to do a project. And so I came in with this idea and the, you know, the, the teacher said, well, this is, these are the, you know, at the start of the year, he said, these are the things that people have made in the past. And there were things like a metal toolbox, which was all folded up and whatever, or I don't know, just other little trinkets and things. And I said to him, hey, how about, I've got an idea. I found these plans somehow. I think I wrote away to some magazine and I, I got these plans del- delivered from America of a go-kart. And so I said to him, hey, I want to I build a go-kart. And I showed him the plans and he was there almost having kittens. He's thinking, hallelujah, at last I've got a real project for one of these kids. And it was such a buzz to um, to do that. And we... We stuck a, what I did, I bought an, a go-kart from somewhere that had proper go-kart wheels on it and the steering system and then we literally bent using a pipe bender a frame up to suit these plans which was like the traditional, when you see racing go-karts now, but the thing is we made it out of like heavy as hell um, pipe so the thing was heavy and we welded it up and got it all going, you know, put the wheels on it. I put a Victor uh, motor mower engine on it and we had a, a you know system a drive rig um, drive system rigged up, and I remember it got to the crescendo. Which and I'm looking at all my mates in the class, and they've got like little hammer that they've spent all year building, or a little toolbox over here. And here's Dave with this go kart, and um, the I, I completely captured the imagination of the teacher um, just through that process, and it was very enthusiastic and all that. Anyway. I remember we got to the point where it was time to give it the trial out in the in the yard in the car park, and we took it out and the mount for the petrol tank. So it was the petrol tank off the mower, 
and it was sitting up high and it had a little just um, light, mild steel framework to support it. And one of those broke. And so the, the tank was flapping around, so it was a bit dangerous. So he said, quick, we've got to take it back in and uh, weld it up. I think it was on the last day of the term or something. It was some sort of time pressure. So we took it back into the workshop and he was so enthusiastic. He just flips it up, flicks the whole um, go-kart on its side and he gets the electric arc welder and he starts welding this thing. And um, I was there holding it with a welding mask and I was looking out the side of my welding mask and the fuel from the fuel tank had started dripping on the on the on the floor of the workshop, and one of the one of the sparks one of the sparks um, ignited, and so there's a pool there's a fire going on, and I'm here, you know, elbowing him, and he realised, and oh bloody hell, and then we had to put the fire out, and it was a you know it was it was just all the enthusiasm of trying to finish this project in time, and it was a, maybe it was a bit of a near miss as well. High school was also the time that Kelly decided he wanted to become an engineer. My next door neighbour was a, um, he was a carpenter for his whole life, uh, old Chico Donahue. And he was just a, a great guy, very hands-on and would always, I'd be over there, a very inquisitive guy and still am a very inquisitive person, trying to just understand how things work and, and particularly trying to understand how things were built and how you unbuild things, how you demolish things. Um, you know, and actually understand how to put them back together. And that's what I've found was my love of structural engineering and uh, architecture to really just um, admire that you can, at the end of the day, one of the satisfying things I found as a carpenter was that at the end of the day, you could stand back and see that you'd actually created something real that once it was you know, filled and painted and, and finished, it was going to sit there for maybe 30 or 40 or 50 years. And now there's a definite satisfaction with that. And then I had my, from my mum's side, my uncle and my um, first cousin were both civil engineers. And, um, you know, we, I guess my mum and dad weren't quite sure how to guide someone. And in those days, in a small country town like that, there wasn't much career guidance because it was just, you know, it's just where we're up to with the development of careers, I guess. And um, so I just... I went and did a couple of weeks of, or maybe one week's work experience with my uncle who was working for the Melbourne Water Board and I saw great big, huge plotting machines and engineers and architects looking very studious and um, and smart and, you know, developing plans and everything else and I thought, hey, that looks pretty like a pretty cool career and... At 17 years old, Kelly left home to pursue his dream career. So I moved to the Big Smoke, uh, three hours south of Corowa. And we, um, the, 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 court, the reason I, I think as much as being uh, interested and very curious sort of person, I also have noticed that I can have a quite a short attention span. And when I looked at, I was, I was offered a place in a couple of different universities, which were straight four-year long courses. And that sounded like absolute murder to me. Um, at Swinburne, they had what's called a sandwich course which is, you know, when you make a sandwich, you've got a piece of bread and a piece of bread and then you, something in the middle. Well, in this, this course of civil engineering, we did two years full-time and then you had like a sandwich. You had work, study, work, study. And so it was a four-and-a-half-year course, but within that four-and-a-half years, we came out with a year of work experience in industry. And I thought that's going to just break it up for me and I need that. 
you know, like that um, that work experience to be able to be sure that to know that what I was studying was actually going to be something that would interest me for a long time. So um, the the sandwich course really worked for me. As Kelly lived in New South Wales, why did he decide to go to university in Victoria? We lived uh, Corowa is on the Murray River, so it's on the border. So as the crow flies, it's about a th- now it's about a three hour drive to Melbourne, whereas it's a six hour drive to Sydney. And my mum was my dad was from that town. My mum was from Melbourne, so we would always be going to Melbourne, catching up with cousins and you know cousin and uncle I mentioned. Um, and so I was much very familiar with Melbourne, whereas really I'd only been to Sydney once or twice, so it made more sense to go across the border and go to Victoria. Evidently, Kelly worked hard at school and university. This carried through to his professional life, which started at a young age. I worked as a kid uh, as a doing a paper round, you know, which was like a five a.m. start as a as a twelve year old. That was pretty brutal, um, and the, we get cold winters down there. Um, I remember riding the paper round in a balaclava, which my mum had knitted, and you know, with a little eye pocket here. But the thing would get so wet because you're riding through this mist. And it would drape down, and so whole, my whole face is getting cold. And then um, you get to the paper shop, leave, take all that stuff off outside, leave it there, come back, and the th- the whole mask was frozen, you know, just from the amount of moisture and the, you know, it actually. So we and that I mean, there's there's colder situations where people go through and stuff, but that was one of the things I remember, and it wasn't that pleasant. So I got out of that job, and I became, uh, I did work at Woolworths as a fruit and veggie uh, guy there. And and doing that sort of stuff in my uni holidays, I worked uh, as a builder's labourer um, with a bricklayer, and I did a couple of other university type jobs. We used to that's a big wheat sheep area, so every year there's a big harvest of wheat. And in those days, I used to work on the wheat silos, you know, receiving the grain from farmers. They'd come in, and we would have to um, you know receive that and document it, etc. And then just uh, you know keep an eye on the truck with discharging it into the right spot so things like that but it was all it was just good country you know honest honest um, people and honest experiences where you're doing hard work and after completing his university degree kelly got his first engineering job and his career really took off i went out i got a job uh, as a structural engineer for a uh, small engineering company and we were designing a lot of um, tilt-up panel buildings and factory buildings and commercial stuff not residential but commercial in melbourne um, yeah, so I did that for a while. Then I went on a trip to India, my first overseas trip. And when I came back from that, I uh, really took off with the engineer, with the carpentry and building, and more, more, a bit more labouring. But I was working with a guy who had a like a, a handyman repair business, and uh, we were doing all sorts of different jobs, new jobs, and f- fixing up this, that, and the other, and a lot of timber frame buildings in Melbourne and houses. So we'd be. Uh, restumping houses, um, you know, repairing anything from win- uh, jammed windows to new doors to insulating houses, so ripping off all the weatherboards, insulating it, you know, re-weatherboarding it. I built a couple of new houses with builders, um, all sorts of just all good hands-on uh, experiences. And I, I felt that that was really, you know, serving that kind of desire to understand because the best way of understanding how things are built is to to build it and to build it from the grassroots. And I found that as a builder, that that experience really, I think, qualified me to really understand 
how the processes worked and, and the different trades, what their responsibilities were and how it all went together. You know, I've always had the opinion that the best best qualified tradesman to be a builder is the carpenter because they see all the different processes and normally they're the leading. Now, there haven't been, I don't think carpentry trade has been as smart as the plumbers and the electricians because generally the plumbers and electricians are getting better paid than the carpenters um, because their unions have really gone in and, and sort of put uh, legal frame or allowed legal frameworks to make their trades appreciated more in terms of their cost. But uh, I always enjoyed being that because I knew that I would ultimately end up building and then developing. And I feel that like even as a development manager myself, uh, managing projects for Toyota, for example, you know, bigger projects and, and things where you've got really organised uh, professional subcontractors working on jobs, you can have residential work, you can get a whole range of different professionalism from different uh, trades, but generally in commercial work, you're getting uh, guys who are better organised, they're running bigger accounts, they're used to acting in a more professional way. And I know that, see, I, I, I feel that it's very, very unlikely that anyone's going to BS me on a project because I've had, an, I've had sufficient experience to know what the trade and, and what the end result and how you get from where you are to that end result in terms of construction methodology, in terms of those specific trades. And if I don't, so I know the, nav- know the way to navigate that path, but also I know what questions to ask to get the answers. And um, I find that as a development manager and even the projects I'm running now and other, you know, all through my career, I've been able to get the attention. Like people know that I'm f- experienced and when they know you're experienced, then um, you're less likely to get the wool pulled over your eyes. Coming up after the break, we hear the details of David Kelly's trip to India. So we, I enjoyed in terms of an experience that was very real and very grassroots. He shares stories about the relationships that he built while traveling. So they'd come, I'd, I'd help them get oriented. These are Indian fellows who'd never been probably out of their state apart from coming to another whole country. We'll learn about the lasting effects of the trip. It was a very humbling experience and, and a, you know, yeah, quite a, quite a curious thing but and that's next i'm tyron shum and you're listening to property investory hey let's be real deals that can yield 20 to 30 percent per annum do exist don't believe me well here's a story about property development i invested in victoria This developer had the project fully funded beforehand but he and his family suffered a loss, a circumstance that led him to be unable to proceed with the development. So I stepped in and in two weeks, we funded the shortfall, allowing for the development to continue. Five months later, the development was refinanced and we received our funds back with interest. Yes, there are amazing opportunities in the property market like this one. Do you want to get a better return with lower risk on your money? Then register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. In the first year of Kelly's engineering career, he took off to India for six weeks. Well, it was wonderful. I I actually at that time in my life was involved in a church in Melbourne 
and they had a sister church in Madras, India, southern India. Now, Madras is now called Chennai. And that church had 12 branch churches all around the city. And they were all in the slum areas. So very poor people. But And we went there to do whatever they wanted us to do. And people, the Indian people were blown away that we would have come. First of all, we looked different. Um, we, they, were, they were just honoured and blown away that we would come. We would have spent our money and our time and left our families to come and be with them for six weeks and do and serve them. And so we did these little mini missions, if you like, at the 12 different churches over the six weeks. And we, we stayed as a group. There was about a dozen of us, guys and girls. We stayed at a YMCA, YWCA and we slept there, have breakfast there, and then we'd get picked up in a bus and then taken to the next, um, you know, next one of the places, churches, if you like, where there was going to be some events happening, they'd pre-organised events and everything. And um, they would cook lunch for us and then we'd probably have a snooze and then go out and hold some sort of event in the evening and then we'd have dinner and they would cook. So we, I enjoyed in terms of an experience that was very real and very grassroots, you know, it was just something else. When I came to leave, um, I cried and cried because I was just so, felt that I'd built such great relationships with those people and they loved me and I was so enthusiastic, I guess, that they just kind of took me under their wing. And Throughout the six weeks, Kelly built strong relationships that continued into the future. They sent three of their young men um, over the next like three or four years, five years maybe, uh, they would come to us, we, they, we, you know, our church in, in Hawthorne in Australia paid for them to come out to uh, Hawthorne and they lived and I, I was living in group houses at the time, like with, you know, two or three other people and they would come and, and inevitably I was asked to look after these guys. So they'd come, I'd, I'd help them get oriented. These are Indian fellows who'd never been probably out of their state apart from coming to another whole country. <clears throat> they spoke English. Um, and so therefore there was more contribution connection with those guys and built, you know, built these really great relationships with them. And I, I think I've always been a very multicultural. Uh, I'm, I'm really quite a, I guess I would say I'm an international guy, very interested in um, that and I've done a fair bit of travel now. So I built up these relationships and then, and then so fast forward, I then moved up to Queensland. I had by that stage had three daughters and I was living here, I, d- I started my screw piling business and I became, I was developing some really good uh, projects and I went on a trade mission, a Queensland government construction trade mission to Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, uh, the UAE and Qatar. And, um, and we were, you know, pitching our business there and it was all very interesting and stimulating. The ex-premier of Queensland was Mike Ahern and he was running the mission and because we were close to Dubai, I sorry, close to India, I decided to fly back. So I'm, by that stage, I was you know, relatively successful in the business world, and I flew back to India. So, and that's that would have been um, like twelve years later, fifteen years later, something like that. So I go back to the same family that had hosted us on my trip, my first trip away overseas, you know, fifteen years earlier, and you know the family they'd gone here, there, and everywhere, but the 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 main family, the mother of the family was there. Her husband had passed away. While Kelly was visiting his host family, he saw the lasting effect that they had on each other's lives. And we went, I went with 
one of the couples and we went for dinner at her place. And after dinner, in a very humble little shack, um, after dinner, the, the couple said, we have to go and do a job, we'll go to do that and we'll come back and get you. And I thought, okay, fine. So they went off and we, I'm sitting there almost in, because I, I wasn't speaking Tamil, uh, any Tamil, um, she was speaking no English. So it was kind of, it was gestures and communication in that way. She walked over to me, she grabbed my hand and, and sort of lifted me as if to say, come with me. So I stood up from the kitchen table she take, takes me into her room and we sit on the bed. She's sitting next to me. And I mean, I didn't think anything strange was at all would ever happen in that context and nothing did. But I was kind of thinking, oh, this is interesting. What's going on here? And so she sat me down and, I, you know, after a couple of like 30 seconds of that, I'm thinking, mm, okay, what's next? Um, should I be saying something? Am I not getting something? And I started then looking around the room. And, you know, it was, it was just a, you know, it was a, not a pristine environment, but it was her environment. It was neat and tidy. And I'm looking around and in front of us was a fireplace. And above that was this photograph of some sort, which had a very dirty glass front on the photograph, you know, smudged. And it was really hard to make out what that was. And, and so the silence kind of went on for a few, what felt like a few minutes. And in the end, I'm thinking, I really don't know what's next or what's, if I'm, something's expected of me now or what's going on. Anyway, I looked up and I, was, I then t- took an actual look at this um, photograph that was on the wall. And it was large. It was a big format. And I was looking at it thinking, and because it was so dirty, it was hard to see what it was, but I started to look. And then I, I had this amazing sense of deja vu. And I'm looking and... The photograph was a photograph of me and my family. From this moment, Kelly had a big realization. I then recalled what happened. I, because these young guys had come back to, they'd come to Australia for a year. They were doing a Bible study course, and I was looking after them. They, the families, were all very interested in David and what you know what he was doing and everything. And because I would had such a great connection with them while I was there, I sent. I remember getting one of my family photos getting it blown up and sending it back there. And I'm talking my um, my family photo of my, me and my kids and my wife at the time. And so this large format photo goes back with one of the guys when he heads back to India and they got it framed and it's sitting up there. And I guess over the time with dirt and dust and things, it just got filthy. So she took me into the room to sit me there and and, and just to so that I could see that she was trying to show me that. And when I finally recognised what, what was in front of me, she grabbed my hand and she said to me, every day we pray for you. And I have to say that it was an incredibly humbling thing to go through because I know that was true. You know, she wasn't there just saying... They would have been praying for me and my family every day.
In a future episode of Property Investory, we'll explore Kelly's property development journey. I met up here in, in Queensland on the Gold Coast two uh, guys who were colleagues of mine at university. They were from Swinburne University. We'll hear about some of his most memorable property development moments. So I started a project, 11 townhouses in Annerley in Brisbane um, with j- just my own money in that and then the bank money. We'll learn about the importance of a good mindset. I slept perfectly for every night while I had that money borrowed from the bank because I knew I could pay it off. And that's next time on Property Investory. If you love the show, perhaps you're now ready to invest your money in a low-risk, high-return deal. If you are, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a lender. There are amazing opportunities in the property market right now and I'm looking for lenders who want to invest their money for as short as 6 months. What are you waiting for? Don't let your money just sit in the bank. To register your interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.